Luke chapter 11, verse 29 down to verse 36. This is what God's word says. When the crowds were increasing, he, that is Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we believe that your word, which has been given to us, reveals your glory. We believe that your holy word, the Bible, is not just lifeless text, is not just a piece of literature, but that it is the very living and active word of God. And we ask now that through it, you would reveal to us your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the Bible, the gospel, the message of God's salvation for sinners, is described in various ways. But one of the most frequent metaphors that is used, which you might have noticed, is to refer to it as light. From the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah foretold of the coming Christ who would be a light of revelation to the nations. And of course, Jesus uh, declared himself to be the light of the world in John 8, 12. And in keeping the same train of thought, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Corinth, spoke of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, what is it about the concept of light that makes it such a fitting description of the gospel? Well, it's such a rich metaphor that there are multiple analogies embedded in that picture. In one respect, the light of the gospel conveys a sense of hope to a world lost in darkness. Or another facet is how it depicts the the brilliance and and beauty of Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 1 says, because he is the radiance, the, the very luminescence of the glory of God as the exact representation of God's essence. Now, there are so many nuances of this metaphor of light that explain the the same gospel in a variety of different ways. But our passage today focuses on one distinct aspect of that metaphor, that is the sheer clarity and perceptibility of its truth. In other words, the gospel of God's salvation is crystal clear and plainly visible for anyone and everyone to behold. 
because its truth shines and radiates to this entire world indiscriminately. Now think about it. Light, as I have some staring right into my eyes, light is indiscriminate. When you turn on the lights of a room, the rays extend out evenly in every direction, doesn't it? Light doesn't choose a more favored orientation to bend towards. The beams of photons don't corral toward a, or a certain preferred uh, direction. No, light, light inherently spreads in and of itself intrinsically all the same. The expansion of light is omnidirectional. And in the same way, the inherent clarity of the gospel is there and available for everyone. God has not made the gospel hard to believe. Or he, nor has he, has he made it esoteric. It requires some secret hidden knowledge. You don't need to be specially educated to have access to the truth of the gospel and to embrace the salvation that God offers. You don't have to have grown up in a certain kind of a home or a family or a background for, for the light of the gospel to reach you and have its illuminating effect on your soul. God has made the gospel accessible to all, without discrimination. Because its message is so clear and undeniable and patently obvious in its veracity. And as such, God has shown himself to everyone by shining forth the truth of his Son. This is the kindness and mercy of God, that the rays of gospel truth would extend to all, so that sinners, no matter who they are or where they are, might perceive the light Come to the light and receive it by faith. You see, we continue this morning in Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And as we mentioned last time, we are beginning to see here a, a crescendo of public hostility against Jesus by the unbelieving Jews, particularly the Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers uh, who were the Jewish leaders at the time. And the same tenor uh, continues here in this next passage as Jesus addresses the recurring issue of unbelief because on this particular day as the crowds were increasing and gathering to see more of jesus as it says in verse 29 he looked at the crowd and made this statement this generation is an evil generation because it looks for a sign now why would jesus speak so strongly and harshly about looking for a sign that is that they were looking for evidence to believe in him because after all, seeking evidence of the truth is not wrong in and of itself. To the contrary, to believe and follow anything without verifying its legitimacy would be foolish. That's how cults work. You have mindless people just following just for the sake of following. But God designed us with intellect. He gave us rational minds with the exercise of discernment. Remember, even Luke, the, the, the author of this book, he began this gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, This book, the gospel of Luke, is my compilation of all the verifiable records of eyewitness testimonies, after having followed everything closely. That is, after having meticulously examined all the claims and interviewed all these eyewitnesses, 
This book is the result of it all. Why? He says in the opening chapter, so that you, he, he wrote this for this man named Theophilus, so that you, Mr. Theophilus, might have certainty about all the things that you were taught about Jesus. The Gospel of Luke was written to give you confidence in the truth by all that is recorded here, which ensures historical accuracy. So clearly there's nothing wrong with seeking a greater assurance of the truth. That's what God wants to give more of for his people. So if that's the case, why would Jesus say such a thing about the crowds? It's because they were seeking a sign, another miracle, another supernatural act to authenticate Jesus when they had already witnessed so many signs. Time and time again. And didn't we see this in the previous passage, last time we were here in the the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus cast out a demon of a mute man, and immediately thereafter the man began speaking. That's earlier in chapter 11, from verse 14. And yet how did the crowds react? Well, some said, oh, he's doing this by the power of demons, which was completely stupid of an argument. It was irrational, and it was a self-defeating claim, and Jesus dismantled that handedly. But it says in verse 16 that some others, in order to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven after he had done just that very thing before their eyes. It wasn't enough what Jesus had done and revealed about his authority and power. It was never going to be enough, you see, because they already made up their minds to harden their hearts in unbelief and resistance. See, Jesus knew the hearts of the crowds. They weren't looking for a sign in sincerity of arriving at the truth. They were looking for more signs and miracles to take another swing at trying to disprove it. To be given another opportunity to discredit the proposition and justify their unbelief. All to no avail because, well, you you can't discredit that which is plainly true. But no matter because they were predetermined to reject it no matter how many signs they were given. Isn't this how many are today? How often do we hear, well, you know, if I had more evidence, I would believe in Jesus. The thing that I always want to wonder is this, how many who say that actually go to look for more evidence? How many really seek the truth? Most of the times, those statements are just a cop-out. And even if you give sufficient evidence testifying to the truth of Jesus, then, well, it comes all the objections and all the rebuttals of, oh, but what if this? Well, maybe it was like that. And in the end, you run into the same wall of, that's not enough evidence. It's never that, no, 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 I can prove why that's wrong, but it's, that's not enough evidence. Why? Because the heart has already hardened itself and made up its mind to reject the truth. That's what the crowds of Jesus' day were like. And Jesus calls them an evil generation. He says, they're always looking for more signs, but guess what? No sign will be given anymore. If you want to insist on unbelief, I will give you over to unbelief. And actually, from this point on, 
until the end of Luke's gospel, you'll notice that there are very few miracles recorded. There was a plethora of them before, weren't there? But from here on out, there are very few miracles. It's mostly now Jesus just teaching and expounding the truth, especially through parables. But miraculous signs, they're now sparse. Jesus really meant what he said. No sign will be given. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is now withholding more revelation, more opportunities to believe him from the people. And perhaps we might say that's unfair. Well, in response, first of all, God owes us nothing. To decry it as unfair is to assume that we are entitled to anything from him. And plus, remember that Jesus had already done countless miracles before the public eye at this, by this point in his ministry. But not only that, notice carefully what Jesus says. He says in verse uh, in verse 20, or rather verse, verse 29, he says, No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. He promises to give yet one more sign, which is an act of grace and mercy. And it is a sign of Jonah. Now what does this mean? Verse 30, For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, what is Jesus talking about? How is he going to be like Jonah? Well, remember the Old Testament prophet, Jonah, when God called him to go preach to the Ninevites, a pagan city of Assyria, and they were wicked and godless, Jonah's immediate response was at first to run away from God's re- directive to preach the message of repentance to them because he didn't want to see them saved. That's how uh, spiritually proud Jonah was. And as he made a beeline for the opposite direction, getting on a ship to Tarshish, God directed a storm to befall that ship, and Jonah was thrown overboard, and he was swallowed up by a fish. By the way, it's not necessarily a whale. Everyone thinks it's a whale because we all watch Pinocchio. I like Pinocchio. It's a good song too, but don't let Hollywood movies uh, dictate your Bible interpretation. It was just a big fish. It could have been a giant tuna, a delicious one for all I know. But in any case, a fish swallows up Jonah. And in that sense, Jonah went down into the watery grave. Because Jonah was as good as dead. I mean, if you're stuck in the ocean and a fish swallows you up, how are you going to get out? And if you were to get out, I gotta find your way back home. You're as good as dead. But by the grace of God, Jonah was spared as God commanded the fish to spit him back up onto dry land on the third day. And in this respect, Jonah was resurrected from the depth of the earth. And he went to preach the message of repentance to the Ninevites who then repented and believed the word of the prophet who had risen from the dead as it were. You see what Jesus is getting at? He's saying, I will give one final sign. And it'll be like the sign of Jonah because he is talking about his resurrection from the dead. And Matthew's parallel account makes this explicit in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. By the way, three days and three nights, it's just an idiomatic expression, which means the same thing as until the third 
day from Friday afternoon until Sunday morning. Because the ancient Jews, they had an inclusive counting method, whereas we have an exclusive uh, counting method for days. But the point is, despite Jesus rebuking the stubborn unbelief of the crowds, in his mercy, he promises yet one more sign of his death and resurrection on the third day. Now, why is this important? Because this one sign is the sign of all signs. The resurrection of Jesus is God's final and ultimate word of truth and testimony. It is the light of revelation beaming into the world with perfect purity and clarity. You see, the gospel is not simply that Jesus died on a cross. There is no hope for good news in simply the fact that Jesus died. Like anyone can claim to be the Son of God. I could do that. Well, I won't if I did run. Anyone can say that they have the authority to forgive sins. But once they die, well, they're just like everyone else, aren't they? Merely human, a mere mortal. What's the difference between you and me? Nothing. How would you ever know if Jesus died and just stayed dead? How would you ever know if if that which he promised was actually fulfilled? How would you have any assurance that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, had died on your behalf to pay for your sins if he just remained in the grave like every one of his contemporaries in the first centuries, because they're all dead now, and like every one of us here will at at some point. We're all going to die. But this is the power of the testimony of his resurrection that God raised him on the third day from the dead, just as he said he would, to make it known to everyone that this Jesus of Nazareth is not just a mere man, but he is man and God. He is God in human flesh. That He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He really lived the sinless life of perfect obedience in the place of those he came to save. And he really died and was punished for the guilt of sin, receiving the full outpouring of God's wrath on the cross in the place of those he came to save. And he rose on the third day to make it crystal clear without a shadow of a doubt, I am the Son of God who has come down from heaven to save sinners. Trust in me. Confess your sin and turn to me. And receive all of the benefits from what I have accomplished, which I will give to you freely. And listen, Jesus not only said these things before he went to the cross, before he died, but he said these things after he rose from the dead. Jesus reaffirmed these promises personally, verbally, with his own mouth that was attached to his resurrected body. This is the plain and obvious truth. In fact, notice how Jesus alludes to Jonah being a sign as a risen preacher to the Ninevites, as verse 32 says, the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, the risen prophet, the risen preacher. In the same way, it's not only that the ultimate sign is just the fact of Jesus' resurrection, although that is more than sufficient to elicit faith, But it is the sign of the risen Jesus testifying about himself post-resurrection. 
Acts chapter 1 tells us that in between Jesus' resurrection from the dead until his ascension, until he, was, until he ascended back up to heaven from the Mount of Olives, there were 40 days. Why 40 days? Because his flight was delayed? Because the holiday rush at the airport? No, because that was a divinely designated 40 days of Jesus' undeniable public appearances and teaching and testifying about himself. It's not just that the body in the tomb disappeared. Well, maybe someone stole it. That's actually impossible because it was sealed shut and there were guards stationed there 24-7 keeping watch according to Matthew chapter 27. But even so, Jesus of Nazareth rose and appeared to people, to the crowds, to the public, ate with them, talked with them once again, touched them and they touched him for 40 days. That's almost six weeks. That's a long time. You see, God has not made the gospel hard to believe. He has brought the light before our very eyes. There is no excuse for unbelief. And if you need any more convincing, just how generous and merciful God is in making the truth of Christ accessible and reachable for us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In the Old Testament, back in 1 Kings chapter 10, under Solomon's reign, we find that at the peak of his reign as king over Israel, the queen of Sheba, which was a pagan nation down south, the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon in Jerusalem. Why? Because she heard of his fame. She heard of his unparalleled wisdom and wanted to witness it for herself. And so she traveled miles upon miles to come to Jerusalem and behold the wisdom of God that was imported to Solomon. And it says that she was so amazed that there was no breath in her, and she praised the God of Israel for bestowing such blessings upon Solomon, his chosen king. And here's the thing if this pagan queen could recognize divine wisdom and truth in Solomon, how could it be that the Jewish crowd surrounding Jesus would refuse one greater than Solomon because Christ is the very wisdom and truth of God incarnate? And not only is Jesus greater than Solomon in his glory and in his perfection, which is needless to say, but Jesus is the greater Solomon because his revelation is greater and clearer and nearer and thus demands a greater response of faith and submission. Because think about it. The Queen of Sheba had to travel far, all the way from what is modern-day Yemen, to come and witness Solomon's glory. She had to go looking. But Jesus, he traveled far down from the infinite heights of heaven to bring his glory and truth to us. What excuse do we have if even this pagan queen was willing to go the distance to behold one far lesser than Christ. 
the queen of Sheba, when she arrived in Jerusalem, she brought a massive load of wealth and all kinds of treasures as a gift offering to Solomon because this is what she deemed was necessary to be admitted into his presence, the king. But Jesus, the king of all kings, calls sinners to receive all the treasures that he gives to them. Simply receive his perfect righteousness, his vicarious life, his death for sinners, his eternal life. What good reason does anyone have to reject Jesus? The grace of God is on a silver platter in Christ. Likewise, Jesus says in verse 32, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, how is Jesus greater than Jonah? Because the wicked, godless, lawless citizens of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, who was a very unwilling prophet who tried to run away from preaching to them. But Jesus went willingly to the cross to pay for sin at the cost of his life so that he might herald this good news to this world lost in sin. The pagan Ninevites listened to Jonah who wanted rather to die than bring salvation to the heathens. But Jesus laid down his life unto death that he might save hopeless and ruined sinners, no matter who they are or what they have done. How easy and how sweet it is for us to trust in Jesus. So merciful a Savior, so comforting his message, so tender his love, so clear his revelation, which he has brought to us by his word. And yet if you refuse even that, then on the last day, there will be those from past history who will rise to condemn your unbelief. Because even they were willing to believe with just a shadow of a gospel that was revealed to them in much lesser conditions, with lesser revelation. They didn't know the person of Jesus. They didn't know his name like we do and all that he has done on the cross. They didn't have the gospel records in explicit clarity of God's plan of salvation and the entire rest of the New Testament as we do now. And despite this spiritual privilege we have in this epoch of living in the age of after Christ's coming, the years of A.D. as opposed to B.C., if even still you refuse to believe, then the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites And countless others under Old Testament history, they will testify on the last day that you have zero excuse. And it will be shown how immeasurably gracious gracious and patient God was to you all along, extending His hand, extending His grace, giving you opportunities over and over again to behold the truth and so repent and believe that you may have life. If you're here this morning and you have yet to believe, here's a very simple question. 
Will you embrace the obvious truth and see the light shining brightly before your eyes? Or will you harden your heart and suppress the truth? You see, the gospel is crystal clear in its veracity and trustworthiness because it is the objective truth. And the truth never needs to fear scrutiny because the truth will always vindicate itself. But the question is, well, if the gospel is so clear and so obvious, then why don't more people believe it? Why is it that rational people, even very intelligent people, some who are great researchers and historians or philosophers or students of even the Bible, why do they remain unconvinced if the gospel is so clear? Well, this is exactly the question that Jesus anticipates. And that's what he addresses next in this illustration about the lamb. And his point is this. The problem is not with the light. The light is perfectly bright and clear and visible. It's not because the light is not shining bright enough or clear enough. But the problem is with the darkness of the human heart. Corrupted by sin. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar. Or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. In other words, it would be silly for someone to turn on the lamp only to hide it in the closet or to cover it uh, with a blanket. Why would anyone do that? I mean, that would be pointless. Just don't turn it on in the first place. In the same way, God would never do such a thing, Jesus says. When he turns on the lights, he intends for the light to shine and illuminate everything. That's why he turned it on in the first place. And so again, God has made the gospel, the light of his revelation, plain and visible and perceptible. Well, what's the issue then? Why do people not see what is so plain and visible? Because of verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now, this is an intricate Analogy that we need to unpack. Jesus is saying, your eye is the lamp of your body. Just physically speaking first. Not because your eyeballs emit light, but because your eyeballs are the conduits of light. They are the instrument of illumination. Light enters your body through the eye. Through this optic receptacle. And as a result, as light enters it, it enlightens the rest of your body. And thus the eye functions as an internal lamp, so to speak. Hence, if your eye is healthy, if there's nothing wrong with your eyes, if everything's good, if the receptacle of light is pure and undefiled, then your whole body will be full of light. That is to say, the light received will permeate and illuminate the whole rest of your body. I mean, think about it. If your eyes are good and they're healthy, there's nothing wrong with them, and they properly receive and process light, then your hand will go where you intend it to go. Your foot will take the step where it intends to step. But if, you're in, if you can't see, if you're blind, then you'll have a lot of issues. But you see, if it is healthy, then your hand will be illuminated, your foot will be illuminated, and as a result, your whole person is illuminated and you will be walking in the light. But if your eye is unhealthy, 
If there is a problem with the receptacle, if it is corrupt and defiled and dirty, then it refuses to receive light properly because it dampens and obscures the light. It's like the optical lens of a camera. Uh, If it's filthy, if it's blackened out, then it won't let light in, no matter how bright the light shines before you. And all your photos will turn out pitch black. You see, in the same way, your, your whole person is left in the dark. If your eye is unhealthy, your body is full of darkness, then, Jesus says. You see, this is the problem of our hearts. Sin is the obfuscator of the soul. Sin corrupts and defiles and contaminates the eyes of our hearts because it pollutes our inner nature, our disposition. And so even when the brilliance of heavenly light shines before us as fallen sinners, our hearts by nature resist it and obscure the light. It blinds us to the truth. And so John 3.19 puts it so bluntly as we read at the beginning of the service, light has come into the world and yet people love the darkness rather than the light. Sinners prefer the darkness. This is what Jesus is saying about the spiritual condition of the unbelieving heart. And such for, such for all of us here, apart from the grace of God. And friend, if you're today here still remaining in unbelief, Jesus is telling you, permit the light to enter into your heart. Stop resisting it and dampening it by the darkness of your sin. Humble yourself in honest confession and believe this diagnosis of your spiritual condition and receive by faith the light that is shining and that has already been shining before your eyes. And that light, if you confess that sin, you know, the light will break in and it will illuminate even your darkened eye. You see, the honest question you must ask yourself is this. Do I want to be enlightened with the truth of God? Do I actually want to know the truth that will set me free from my bondage to sin? Do I want to know a joy that is eternal, the hope of heaven, the purpose, the true purpose and meaning of life in Christ, in the presence of God. Do I want that? If so, do not harden your heart. Permit the light to enter. Bring this to God and He will not leave you in darkness because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is able to shine forth His divine supernatural light into your dark heart and swallow up, swallow up the darkness of your unbelief. If only you seek Him in true humble sincerity and honest confession that you are a sinner in need of His grace. He is able and very willing to open the blinded eyes of sinners. That's what he has done for all the believers in this room. And hasn't Jesus shown this willingness of his? All the times he opened the eyes of the physically blind and all the different miracles he did. 
This is the grace of God, ever-present, always shining before you. But non-Christian, humble yourself today and let it shine into you that it might save you from the darkness of sin and spiritual ignorance. Now, some of you listening have been in the church for many years. But the question for you is, have you truly had the light of the gospel illuminate your darkened heart? Now, I don't know who I'm talking to. Only God knows. But here's a sober warning for you in verse 35. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Jesus is talking about those who think that they have embraced the light simply because they stand in front of the light source and they are exposed to its rays. But be careful, lest it actually turn out to be that your heart has remained in darkness this entire time. You can sit under constant exposure to this external source of light. And you can do it for many years or even many decades, but it's possible that the light has never penetrated, entered into you, and has radiated its glory internally in your soul. To put it more plainly, you can be exposed to the preaching of the word regularly, attend church every single week your entire life, hear of how amazing is the grace of God, but never have been changed by it, never have tasted it. And still be blind to it. Now how would I know if this is me? What's the basic signs of the new birth? Affections for God. A real desire and appetite to know Christ and grow deeper in His love. You you can be exposed to the regular preaching of the beauty of Christ, His loveliness, but never have had true affection for him. Never have had a real love. Now let me be clear. The question is not, do you love Jesus perfectly? But the question is, do you love Jesus at all? That's a sign that you've really seen him for who he is. That you actually love him. You know, I think of my own conversion. I grew up in the church. I was practically born into the church. I'm sure I had every lady in the church change my diapers at some point. Okay, I was church boy through and through. I was the good Bible kid. I was the one that came from that that really good Christian household with the really good faithful parents and good values, upright, all that stuff. Ooh, that was a good resume, wasn't it? But all along, there was never a love for God. There was never affection for Jesus. Because in my mind, it was always just a religious duty of, okay, I have to go to church for God. Okay, I have to do this for God. Okay, if I don't do this, then God will not be happy. And Jesus was effectively just a boss. Until one day, maybe I was around 16, I don't remember exactly, The grace of God opened my eyes for the first time through His Word. And it was when I understood the infinite holiness of God. And then I realized my infinite sinfulness. And how deserving I am of His wrath. 
no matter how good everybody thinks I am, and that there's nothing I can do to merit my way to Him and atone for my sins, no matter how many Sundays I never miss, no matter how many Bible stories I memorize, but that's when I finally realized and saw the beauty of Christ. The Christ whom I had known from afar all those years, the the Jesus that I was determined to just placate and obey under duress. For the first time, my eyes opened to see and behold Jesus who was on the cross because he took my place. I should have been there, but he was there instead. He who should have discarded me and left me in my spiritual blindness and ruin, but instead he gave himself for me. He who, while I was busy pursuing my own crown of selfish glory, he had taken the crown of thorns because of all that I had done to receive the punishment I deserve for robbing God of his rightful glory. See, for the first time I saw Jesus, not only as someone I just had to go to church for and carry out all these burdens for, but to see him as someone now so worthy of my love, my worship, my lifelong and eternal gratitude and service in my whole life. Beloved, has this light of the gospel shown and broken into your hearts? Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ for who He is? Do you see His face clearly glowing in the loveliness of His grace? Again, I'm not asking if you love Him perfectly, but do you love Him with this affection at all? And if you do at all, it is because God has revealed His grace to you. And praise God that you are in Christ with a true and living faith. And be encouraged by verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is depicting the blessing of sanctification for the Christian. The entire life, the lifelong process of growing in holiness as a believer. Now we can spend an entire hour just on the theology that is illustrated in this verse. But if I can put it succinctly, it's this. The Christian life can be described as growing in holy luminance more and more. In other words, it is the lifelong process of God's holy light illuminating more of our hearts, more of our lives, affecting every part of us increasingly as we pursue a greater intimacy and knowledge of Him through His Word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Proverbs, Proverbs four eighteen says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. You hear that progressive language? It is the light of God having an increasing influence upon us. But some of you may not be feeling like you quite live up to this. You may be feeling discouraged in your struggle with sin. If that's you, may I remind you that growing in holiness very much involves 
growing in greater awareness and hatred of your sin, even growing to be appalled by the darkness of your heart. But that's because you are in fact growing in His holy light. You see, there are many times in your walk with your Lord where, where, where you strangely feel more wretched than ever. And you can feel really discouraged because of it. But you feel that way actually because the light of His glory has been continuing to expand within you. And it is reaching new dark crevices of your heart. It's a painful process at times because it's not very fun. It's disheartening to see how disgusting our sin can be. But the fact that you see it, the the fact that His light has reached there, it shows and means that the light has been shining in the darkness of your heart and the darkness will not overcome it. And so Christian, be strengthened and take heart. Keep walking in the light of God's glory. And as you do, may His Spirit illuminate your soul with brighter and richer glimpses of His grace in Christ. Let's pray together. Holy Father, You are the God of light, of all beauty and excellence and perfection. And we thank you that you have called sinners like us out of our darkness into your marvelous light. Help us then to proclaim your light. Help us to persevere in faith and obedience and devotion to Christ. And Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would set apart these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup and use them to reaffirm for us the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the light of His glory, which is His grace. Through His death and resurrection, all given to us, remind us of it and may the light of the gospel through this sacrament, penetrate into deeper corners of our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.